Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's talk, I want to point out something from last week's podcast with Alan Watts that I forgot to mention. In his uh, presentation, Watts seemed a little bit dismissive about the then-current adventures of Ken Kesey and Timothy Leary. Basically, he seemed to think that they weren't being very professional. Well, if you go back to some of my early podcasts and listen to the three interviews that I recorded with Myron Stoloroff under the title Lone Pine Stories, somewhere in one of those you're going to hear the rest of the story about Alan Watts. So what happened, uh, I guess it's probably a year or so after Watts gave the talk that we listened to last week, is that Al Hubbard and Myron Stoloroff both thought that somebody needed to have a talk with Leary and try to calm him down a bit and nudge him back into the shadows. So they enlisted Alan Watts to travel to the Millbrook estate in New York, where Leary and his gang were ingesting a lot of LSD. And Watts was to try to talk Leary into being a little less public about this work. I know I've mentioned this before, but (laughs) it's such a cool story. I can still remember sitting at Myron's dining room table when he told me this story. And I asked him how that trip by Watts worked out, because it didn't seem like the Millbrook work calmed down very much. And that's when Myron slapped his forehead with the palm of his hand and said, Well, Watts went native on us and joined them. Unfortunately, I never followed up about that, and so I don't know if Myron was exaggerating or if Alan Watts actually did join the fun and games at Millbrook. Maybe somebody will post an answer to that question in the comments section for last week's podcast, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. Anyway, uh, today we're going to get to hear from someone many of our fellow saloners have been asking for for a long time, Robert Anton Wilson. And, like in the case of Alan Watts, there really isn't much that I can say in the way of an introduction, since most of us here in the salon are already familiar with his books and talks. And, while you don't have to listen to this talk while you're stoned, in my opinion, it can only enhance your enjoyment of this talk. (laughs) Of course, uh, I've listened to this talk now both straight and stoned, and for what it's worth, I think that stoned is better. Of course, (laughs) I think that everything is better when you're stoned, so I guess that advice isn't worth all that much after all. In any event, no matter what state you're in right now, I think this is going to be a really fun talk for you to listen to. So now, here is the one and only Robert Anton Wilson. Since it is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, uh, how many people know what the Immaculate Conception is at all? I, I live in Ireland where everybody knows. The Immaculate Conception is the, uh, the conception of uh, the BVM, that's the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, she was immaculately conceived. That means she was conceived without sin. All the rest of us were conceived in sin. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but as far as I've been able to uh, research Catholic theology, it means that the church suspects our parents may have had a little fun while they were fucking. And so we're all conceived in sin, but apparently uh, 
Mary's parents were an impotent man and a, and a frigid woman, so she was conceived without sin. Uh, she's the patron saint of Andrea Dworkin, I think. Andrea Dworkin is the one who used to say that all sexual intercourse between men and women was degrading to the woman, and recently she revised her position. She said it's okay if the man doesn't have an erection at the time. Uh, uh, people laugh at her, but I think she may be the first female pope. Uh, she, has a, she has a definitely papist... Uh, a defi- she could be a Jesuit. She's got... <laughs> Uh, I wonder how many I wonder how many people ever have had intercourse without an erection. Oh well, <laughs> maybe I'll find out in a few years. Most men my age are dead already, as Casey Stengel once said. Uh, uh, Jesus was conceived without sin, and, his, and it took them 1,900 years to decide his mother was conceived without sin too. That's when the Immaculate Conception was promulgated was in the 1870s, and uh, at the rate the church is going in another. The 1900 years, they'll decide his grandmother was conceived without sin. So we'll go retroactive back to the uh, back to the amoebas and the formless creatures of the featureless void. I suppose it's only that one line. The rest of us are all conceived in sin. And anyway, the um, the feast of the Immaculate Conception is an appropriate. Uh, evening to uh, uh, consider the subject of religion for the hell of it. Uh, I, I think it's really a wonderful, remarkable uh, tribute to, um, to humanity that we've had for 2,000 years. We've had a religion that's basically uh, based on the idea that a Jewish girl who got mysteriously pregnant was able to convince her husband that a pigeon did it. <laughs> and and uh, people have been repeating this for, uh, for nearly 2,000 years, and a lot of them have been believing it. And uh, to realize how remarkable that is, just, just imagine if uh, uh, some woman you know suddenly started swelling, and you said, oh, uh, expecting that. Huh? And she says, yes, but it was a pigeon. Uh, somehow the fact that it happened 2,000 years ago, some people are willing to believe it. That's, uh, that illustrates Voltaire's general principle. The, uh, the only way to get any conception of what mathematicians mean by infinity is to consider the extent of human stupidity. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the Ayatollah Humaini, he's written a commentary on the Koran, and in it he, uh, he says Allah is very vehemently opposed to divorce. The Ayatollah is on very intimate terms with Allah, and he knows what Allah thinks about just about everything. And the Ayatollah takes up a lot of hard cases, just like Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I admire theologians who are willing to deal with hard cases. Uh, They produce remarkable results that uh, inspire a great deal of the satire in my books. Uh, The Ayatollah takes up the case of a man who's in the habit of sodomizing camels. And uh, he demonstrates that even in that case, the wife does not have any legitimate grounds for divorce. I mean, this guy may give her something worse than AIDS, but she married him, so she's stuck with him. However, the Ayatollah believes Allah has some sense of uh, relativity. Allah will grant the woman a divorce if her husband is in the habit of sodomizing her brother. 
and uh, this this may this may sound like surrealism or something, but it's rigorous logic. The theologians always use rigorous logic, and uh, the reason it sounds like a lot of Catholic theology is that both uh, Thomist theology and Islamic theology were very heavily influenced by events. Uh, Ibn Sina, a great uh, Sufi theologian, who tried to systemize. Uh, the Islamic system and uh, the, the reason it's uh, better to sodomize a camel than your brother-in-law though, though, those of you who have been wondering whether you should try sodomy or not and when you should start and who you should start with um, according to the Ayatollah it's much better to, to bugger a camel than your brother-in-law because you see if you're stopping a camel that's only a sin on your part and you're not corrupting another soul because camels don't have any souls but if you're bugger your brother-in-law, you're leading him into sin too. And uh, so you see the whole thing makes sense. <laughs> Every, uh, that's the wonderful thing about religion, it all makes sense. If, if you grant the original premise. Uh, the, the, Pope, uh, the Pope says, uh, the Pope is on intimate terms with God too, only his God isn't named Allah. His God has an unpronounceable name. He's got a Jewish God. Considering the record of anti-Semitism of the Catholic Church, that in itself is astounding that they got a Jewish God and they hate the Jews. But uh, their God is going to name something like Yahweh or Yahweh or something like that, and he's against divorce too. Now he's even more vehemently against divorce than, the, than Allah. According to the Pope, God doesn't approve of divorce in any case, no cases whatsoever. And the church is very Aristotelian. When they say no cases, they mean no cases. So a Catholic uh, male can bugger all the camels he wants and his brother-in-law on weekends. Uh, he, he, can go, he can go out with whores every night and he can come home drunk and beat his wife up and sexually abuse his children and give his wife a case of AIDS. And she still can't divorce the bastard because to, uh, to the church, no, no divorce means no divorce. You see, the Ayatollah is really a flaming liberal compared to the Pope. I, I should say the Catholic Pope, because there are around 8 million popes in the world today, uh, a fact for which I am largely responsible. I, uh, I'm a pope myself. As a matter of fact, uh, as a matter of fact, for those of you up front here, you see, there's my pope card, right? The bearer of this card is a genuine and authorized pope, right? <laughs> Uh, you don't. You don't have to have a pope card to be a pope. Uh, when we started out, this, this is uh, this is part of uh, one of the new age religions that I helped found. A lot of people get involved in new age religions, and the, uh, here's another pope card. <laughs> Okay, shall we do the O-Walk commercial? Hold up your Pope cards. <laughs> Only two in the house? Oh, well, that's okay. I'm going to make you all Popes automatically right now anyway. <laughs> Spectacles, testicles, brandy, cigars. Okay. You're, you're all Popes now. 
Original, this is a Discordian uh, institution. The, the Discordian Society, uh, and I, I belong to the lunatic fringe of the Discordian Society, which is the, the paratheo hood of Aris Esoteric, which some of you may have heard of. That's uh, abbreviated P-O-E-E and pronounced Pui. Uh, this, this was founded when my good friend Malaclips the Younger was in a bowling alley in Europe. Belinda, California, where where Richard Nixon grew up. You see, it's all one seamless web, as Alan Watts used to say. And uh, originally, uh, Mal was printing Pope cards and distributing them, and I started doing that too. And then I got the idea of writing a novel and including a Pope card in the novel, so everybody who owned the novel would be a Pope. And so since the novel sold about a million copies so far, I've created a million popes that way. And then Margot Adler repeated the Pope, reprinted the Pope card in her book, Drawing Down the Moon, which is about matriarchal religions in the United States. And so all the readers of her book became popes just by having the Pope card in their book in their possession. And uh, then just recently, the, uh, the guy in Rome who still thinks he's the only pope, uh, he announced that uh, cardinals could uh, give indulgences over television, <laughs> which, uh, which is something entirely new. The church is adapting to the modern technological age, and uh, now a cardinal can get up on television and give an indulgence, and everybody who has the set turned on gets the indulgence by electronic osmosis or something. And this, this led to a lot of debate in fucking Dublin. Uh, the fucking Dublin has the most uh, argumentative and subtle atheists in the world. That's the that's the, one of the results. It's one of the inevitable byproducts of Jesuit education. The Jesuits educated the Marquis de Sade and uh, Diderot and Voltaire and uh, James Joyce and. Uh, Hmm? Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown. I, well, I don't know about that case. Uh, but they are very good at producing intellectually intricate atheists, along with the herd of true believers that they set out to produce. And the atheists in Dublin started writing letters asking for clarification of uh, the indulgences by television. If you make a videotape, one of them has, and you play it over and over, do you get perpetual indulgence? <laughs> I wrote in to suggest that anybody who did that could come to San Francisco and get honorary membership in the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. But they didn't print that, evidently, because nobody in fucking Dublin got that reference. But uh, I decided if they can do... Indulgences over television, I can do pontifications over television and radio. So whenever I'm on a TV or a radio show, I make the whole audience popes at some point during the show. So I've created over 9 million popes now. And they're all equally infallible because all Discordian popes are equally infallible and they all disagree with one another. I was on a radio show in England and uh, with eight other guests. It was one of those round-robin talk shows and there was a Scotsman there who was a designer of bagpipes in the traditional style. I told him my father-in-law said a bagpipe was something an Irishman gave a Scotsman and told him it was a musical instrument. And, uh, but he makes really classic bagpipes. And after he heard about my uh, pan pontification project, the effort to make every man, woman, and child on the earth a pope, he told me I should send a pope card to Ian Paisley right away. Ian Paisley is the leader of the Protestant uh, 
bigots in Northern Ireland, his slogan is no pope in Ulster. So I made Ian Paisley a pope. Which, uh, and he hasn't left Ulster yet. He doesn't have the simple honor to skulk away like he should now that he's a pope. I also sent the pope card to the anti-pope in southern France, which makes him a pope and an anti-pope at the same time, which, which means he can get into the next, he can get into Hofstadter's next book as a living strange loop. Uh, the uh, the Discordian, I, I, should, I should explain Discordianism to you a little. Uh, Aris is uh, the goddess of chaos, discord, confusion, bureaucracy, and international relations. And right away you see we've got a winner here, because if you look around the world, what do you see the most of? Chaos, discord, confusion, bureaucracy, and international relations. So it's obvious that Ares is the most powerful divinity at this point in history. The, uh, the, the basic Discordian uh, theology is that all of our problems began with the original snub. They, they were having a party on Olympus and they didn't invite Ares. And so she got so ticked off that she made a beautiful golden apple. Some say it was metallic gold. Some say it was Acapulco gold. Uh, Discordian folks all disagree with each other. But whatever kind of gold it was, she threw it into the party. And she wrote on it, she had written on it, Kalisti, which is Greek for, for the prettiest one. And so all the goddesses started arguing over which one should get the apple, which one was the prettiest one. Just like Nancy complaining about Raisa being better dressed than her. Uh, some things are eternal. And uh, the goddesses got into such a terrific fight that the only way to settle it was for Zeus to pick a mortal to make the decisions. So he picked Paris, and all the goddesses tried to bribe him. Athena offered him wisdom. And Minerva offered him security or something like that. And uh, Venus, who was the Sharpie and the Bunchy, offered him Helen of Troy. So there was no doubt how he was going to uh, uh, vote. And uh, that led to the Trojan War. And ever since then, we've had chaos, discord, confusion, bureaucracy, and international relations. And it all derives from the original snub. Now, I think that's as good a theology as you can find anywhere in the hate, and uh, I hope you're all happy being Discordian popes. Uh, it may seem oversimplified, but we've got the symbolic dodge. We, we've read T.S. Eliot, you see. It's more like a great poem than like a scientific statement. That's what Eliot said about the Anglican Church, so we say it about Discordianism. You don't have to take it literally. Ares is just a symbol of the second law of thermodynamics. However, we do have our own metaphysics. The basic metaphysics of the Discordian society is all affirmations are true in some sense, false in some sense, meaningless in some sense, true and false in some sense, true and meaningless in some sense, false and meaningless in some sense, and true and false and meaningless in some sense. And if you repeat that 666 times, you, you will achieve supreme enlightenment. In some sense. Actually, Discordianism was inspired by Kirby Hensley, who started out in the 1950s to make, every, to make as many clergy entities as possible. You notice I again avoided human chauvinism. I didn't say clergy persons. And as a matter of fact, Hensley has ordained parrots, chimpanzees, dogs, cats. Uh, 
He ordained Madeleine Murray O'Hare, the country's leading atheist. And he doesn't charge for it. He'll ordain anybody. That's why he calls it the Universal Life Church. He believes that every sentient being has the right to be a clergy entity. And so he's been sending out these ordinations through the mail since the 50s. And uh, they're free. If you want to get a doctor of divinity, he charges for that. That's $20. If you're satisfied just being a clergy person, that's free. If you want to be a doctor of divinity, it's $20. But he's done more to raise the, the quality of religion in the United States than anybody in our time. As soon as you get ordained by him, you have all the rights of clergy, and you can start your own sect, or sects if you prefer the plural. I always prefer sects myself, but uh, the... Uh, when he decided to make every uh, living uh, being a clergy entity, that's what inspired uh, the Discordian movement to make every uh, entity a pope. Uh, Hensley has ordained, quite, he ordained me, he ordained my, my, my friend Malaclips the Younger, the chief Discordian atheologian, and uh, he ordained the founder of the Reformed Druids of North America. Uh, that's, that's a group that started at a college in uh, Indiana in the 1950s. At that college, they still had compulsory church attendance. You had to go to some church or other. They didn't care which, but you had to go to some church once a week. So a bunch of free thinkers on the campus announced that they were Druids and started going to the woods every week. They, they took along a bottle of Irish mist, which they claimed was their sacrament. And uh, after a while, they started getting interested in Druidism, and they started doing Druid rituals. And then they found out the chief Druid ritual was human sacrifice. So, so they quickly changed their name to the Reformed Druids before anybody would get nasty ideas about them. They, they sacrifice a branch off a tree in their rituals. And then they extended it to the Reformed Druids of North America when they got some converts in Canada. Now they got groves all over the United States. There's one over in Berkeley called the Nut Grove, which I, I think is a lovely name for a new religion, the Nut Grove of the Reformed Druids of North America. I, I, got, I got, after getting ordained by Hensley and, and made a pope by Malaclips, I uh, got initiated by the Reformed Druids, and I immediately formed a heresy. The Reformed Non-Aristotelian Druids of North America, or RNA-DNA. Uh, the, the, reformed, uh, the Reformed Druids, uh, in their ceremonies, you have to repeat three times, nature is good, nature is good, nature is good. And as a non-Aristotelian disciple of Alfred Korzymski, I don't believe in the is of identity. I believe that's what we're projecting outward, what are internal evaluations in our nervous system. So I formed uh, the reformed non-Aristotelian druids of North America, and we say, nature seems good to me. Nature seems good to me. Nature seems good to me. We avoid all that Aristotelian metaphysics of assuming we know the true na the true essence of reality. The, the reformed the non-Aristotelian druids, uh, since I founded it, has tripled in membership. There are three of us now. <laughs> but then, but then I met Dr. Horace Naismith, a good old boy from Texas. 
He's the founder of the Dope and Guns Party, which, which should be the most successful political party in the United States, but for some reason it isn't. He, he may not have the right approach in his uh, campaign literature. It's Dr. Naismith's notion that all the gun nuts are terrified the government's trying to take their guns away. You know, you've seen those bumper stickers, they'll take my gun away when they pry my cold, dead fingers from the barrel. And, uh, and if guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns, which uh, always remind, always makes me think of nukes are outlawed, only outlaws will have nukes. Or the, the great paradox of anarchism, if laws are outlawed, only outlaws will have laws. <laughs> Then there's the then there's the other haunting there's the other haunting thought. If marriage is outlawed, only outlaws will have in-laws. <laughs> well, the gun nuts are pretty agitated about the continuous plotting in Washington to take their toys away from them. And, uh, you know, as John Lennon said, happiness is a warm gun. And as Mark Chapman said, happiness is John Lennon in your gun sights. Down in... Uh, down in L.A. now, they've taken to shooting each other on the freeways. If you had a drive in the traffic down there, you might feel that way, too. There are cars down there that have bumper stickers that say, Don't shoot, I'll let you pass. <laughs> this is the most gun-happy country in the world. And yet the damn government is planning to take away people's simple pleasures from them. And so Dr. Naismith, who, come, who hails from Texas, where everybody has a gun, um, he decided to form the Guns and Dope Party. He said if you get all the dopers and all the gun people together, you have a majority. If they can only get over being paranoid about one another, because most of the dopers don't like the gun people, and most of the gun people are afraid of the dopers. But Dr. Naismith was convinced if he could get them together, they'd be a majority, and we'd uh, have a libertarian-type government again. Somehow it hasn't worked out that way. Much more successful was Dr. Naismith's uh, new religion, the John Dillinger Died for You Society, which, uh, of which I am an assistant treasurer. Uh, that entitles me to collect dues from anybody dumb enough to think that it's worth while joining the John Dillinger Died for You Society. John would have wanted it that way. <laughs> The John Dillinger Died for You Society is a kind of splinter off the Libertarian Party with the theological connotations. It's the basic teaching of the Dillinger, John Dillinger Died for You Society that St. John the Martyr, as we call him, he proved that even in hard times, even during a depression, a real man doesn't have to go with his hand out to the government and ask for the dole. A real man can go out and make money his own way. Or as John said in his own words. Praise John. Praise John. As John said, you can get more with a simple prayer and a Thompson submachine gun than you can get with a simple prayer alone. John robbed 23 banks and three police stations. Uh, the, the banks were his way of dealing with his financial problems in the Depression, and everybody had pro financial problems then. I think robbing the police stations was art for art's sake, uh, which, is, which is another thing that makes John uh, such an appeal. That, that and the, the legend that he had a 23-inch penis, I bet even in this generation a lot of people have still heard that. That, that seems to be one of those undying bits of folklore. When I was at Playboy, I, I persuaded the, the, 
editorial director that we should do a feature in the Playboy Advisor on is it true that John Dillinger had a 23 inch penis? The, the legend is that it's uh, preserved at the Smithsonian Institute in an alcohol bottle and you have to know high government officials to be allowed to say it now the uh, the women in the uh, Playboy research department are a pretty hard boiled lot I mean working for an outfit like that uh, calling the Kinsey Institute constantly for information about odd sexual practices and whatnot. They, they, it's, not, it's not easy to embarrass them. But the researcher who got this job was really embarrassed. She thought this was the most ridiculous thing she ever had to do. And I happened to be, she had an office right next to me, and I heard her on the phone at, at the Smithsonian. She said, I'm a researcher at Playboy magazine, and I feel like an absolute idiot about what I'm about to ask you. And then there was a pause, and she said, how many? And the fellow on the other end said, you're going to ask about Dillinger's penis? We get 17 calls about that every week. <laughs> no, we do not have it in a jar. But of course, that's what they would say if they're keeping the relic and showing it only to high government officials. Who knows, maybe Gorbachev got to see it, but they won't let like the killer rabbit that attacked Jimmy Carter or something that the government doesn't want to share with us. Um, the, uh, the, the Dillinger Society has its own mantra, uh, which we take from uh, a wise bit of advice that John gave to bank, to bank officials when he was making his unorthodox withdrawals. Lie down on the floor and keep calm. This, this contains all the wisdom of the Orient, if you think about it. John was trying to teach them detachment from material concerns, a tranquil mind, the art of going with the flow. And uh, Of course, the John Dillinger Die For You Society is splintered, too. That's the way it is with New Age religions. Uh, in 1969, Jane Nash, a Chicago journalist, came out with a book called Dillinger, Dead or Alive, in which he tried to prove the FBI shot the wrong guy at the Biograph Theater and then faked all the records, faked the fingerprints and all the other evidence so the public wouldn't find out what assholes they made out of themselves shooting an innocent man again. Uh, part of what makes this faintly plausible is that Dillinger had uh, gray eyes, according to the Navy record, and the corpse at the Biograph had brown eyes. Mm. Unless the Navy records were wrong or the coroner was careless. Uh, but uh, that's one bit of evidence. Another bit of evidence is the FBI was very embarrassed in the Dillinger matter because just the month before they had shot four innocent businessmen in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. They got a report that the Dillinger gang was staying at a motel there and they, they went racing to the scene and these four businessmen came out the front door as the FBI arrived and the FBI thought it was the Dillinger gang making an escape and they shot all four of them. That made a lot of bad publicity for the Bureau. Uh, people were fair pissed. And so Nash's argument was when they shot another innocent man at the Biograph, they covered up and pretended it really was Dillinger. And Dillinger is alive in Los Angeles, he claimed. Well, uh... Any Midwestern boy who reached sainthood eventually does go to Los Angeles, they think. That's sort of heaven to Midwesterners. And so the Dillinger Society had a split. Uh, did Dillinger really die for us, or was he alive in Los Angeles? 
And we, of course, split into three factions. The orthodoxy re rejects Nash's evidence as uh, cuckoo and unfounded and insubstantial and mostly hearsay, and insists Dillinger did indeed die for us at the Biograph Theater in 1934. And uh, the Reformed uh, Division holds that uh, Dillinger didn't die for us literally, but only symbolically by setting an example and then going underground, as it were. Uh, I, I'm the leader of the liberal wing. I, I hold that uh, Dillinger did get shot at the Biograph Theater, and he's still alive in Los Angeles. He has risen. <laughs> then, uh, you see how much fun it is to start your own religion? Uh, I don't know why people keep going around looking for gurus. Be your own guru. Start your own religion. Uh, I've been having so many fun for years with my friends inventing new religions, and we get more and more converts all the time, whom we immediately excommunicate, <laughs> since we have no ambition of being religious leaders. And another friend of mine invented the... The Java Crucians. Uh, th this, uh, this is. Uh, the, the, he insists this is not a religious organization. Uh, the, the Java Crucians is allegedly based on ancient Bolivian uh, teachings. Uh, the, the, the basis of it is the American coffee ceremony, which is the polar opposite from the Japanese tea ceremony, which has to be done very precisely and slowly and with care and in that finicky Japanese way, you know. The American coffee ceremony is done in the most slapdash way possible. You get up in the morning, you, you turn on the hot water tap, you find a cup that isn't too dirty, you throw in some instant coffee. You don't use a spoon, you just throw it in this way because your eyes aren't open yet, right? And the hot water turns it into some kind of muck that vaguely resembles coffee. And then you turn and face the east and gray and greet the rising sun and you say rah 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 and then you drink the coffee and you say god I needed that and, uh, this is supposed to produce total mental clarity and serenity uh, the, the claim is your brain starts operating right away and keeps on operating right up until the time you arrive at the office when, of course, you go through brain death like every other person working in an office. But, uh, at least it keeps you going until you get there. Um, the Discordians have a rival ritual. Uh, once the Java Crucians split off from the Discordians, we had to find our own dawn ritual. And, of course, Malaclips, the uh, greatest theologian, invented it. It's the, the toad-elevating moment which was borrowed from a Monty Python skit. Uh, the idea is if you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is eat a live toad, nothing worse will happen to you all day. Well, practically nothing worse. Um, now, I, I think all of these things makes, make as much uh, sense as, uh, for instance, the uh, doctrine that... Uh, this Jewish girl 2,000 years ago got knocked up by a pigeon and that anybody who uh, anybody with a willy uh, who's duly ordained uh, can turn a piece of bread into the body and blood of that uh, guy who was, whose father was a pigeon, which is taken seriously by millions and millions of people all over the world. You've got to have a willy to do it. Uh, th this is uh, one of the hot issues in the Catholic world, you see. I... Uh, the reason I talk about the Catholic Church so much is I live in Ireland, so I'm surrounded by Catholic uh, agitation and debate all the time. 
There's a lot of nuns that want to be allowed to say mass. They say, why should only males be allowed to be priests? And the Pope's answer is that it's always been that way, and it's always going to be that way, at least as long as I'm Pope. And, be, uh, and besides, uh, only a man can represent Jesus. Uh, the idea is the most important thing about Jesus was not his sweet character, as as we get it in the New Testament, his forgiveness, his, gen- his gentleness, his sublime philosophy. No, that's not what the really, really important thing about him was that he had a willy. And you got you got to have a willy to be like Jesus. If you don't have a willy, it doesn't matter. You can be a saint, you can be a bodhisattva, you can be a, the, an ascended master, but if you don't have a willy, you can't say mass. Now, this is a really remarkable doctrine when you stop to think about it. It's based on the idea, I think, that God also also has a willy. Uh, you notice most, most Christians refer to God as hey. Uh, you hardly ever hear them refer to God as it. And uh, only a few of the more liberal churches have started referring to God as she. The first article I ever had published back in 1959 was in the Realist magazine, and it was on that question, does God have a penis? I I was the first one to raise that question, and I'm delighted to see that it's become such a controversial issue in the last 20 years, because I think it really is important. Can you imagine if God does have a penis, what kind of schlong that would be? Uh, Astronomical dimensions, to say the least of it. And uh, if, uh, if, if God did have a schlong like that, no wonder he had to turn into a dove before he could knock Mary up. Otherwise, it would have been as impossible as King Kong's love for Fay Ray. <laughs> the, the great pathetic love story of the 20th century. But uh, and then there's the church of uh, Fred Mertz, Bodhisattva. Uh, that was founded by another Discordian named Antero Ali, who comes from Finland. He's a great poet, mime, actor, uh, psychic reader, tarot reader, and uh, practical joker. Lives in Boulder. For all I know, he's behind the drug-free urine business. Wouldn't put it past him now that I think of it. Um, Antaro Ali invented the church of uh, Fred Mertz Bodhisattva when he was in an altered state of consciousness attained by some method of Tibetan magic, I assume. Or maybe it was just the later shipment of Sansamia from Humboldt. I don't know. But uh, he suddenly decided, you know, uh, Amida Buddha swore that uh, he would not enter nirvana until all sentient beings were, could also enter nirvana and so there's this belief among uh, Amida Buddhists that Amida Buddha keeps reappearing in many forms to reach every class of sentient being and of course he's got to reach even even the lice and the, the <laughs> microbes and whatnot before his work is finished this is a, this is a heavy task for, to take on but, but Buddhists, Buddhists think in different time scales than the rest of us as you may have noticed and uh, on Taro decided that Amida Buddha was manifesting on television to the lowest of the low, the people who look at I Love Lucy. Uh, You would think those people could never achieve enlightenment, wouldn't have a ghost of a chance. But Amida Buddha infiltrated himself into the show disguised as Fred Mertz. And if you're in the proper state of mind, when you look at I Love Lucy, you'll see that everything Fred Mertz says is as profound as a Zen co 
there was one there was one Zen master who answered every question, no matter what it was. What is the Buddha? How does one achieve, how does one achieve Buddhahood? What is the Tao? No matter what the question was, this one Zen master always answered quats. That was his whole answer, quats. And then there was the one who answered moo. You know, it's uh, one of the most famous ones. Does a dog have the Buddha nature? Moo. And uh, if you look at if you look at uh, I Love Lucy, it's amazing how many times Fred comes out with the same mystic, uh, in, in, indecipherable monosyllable. No matter what happens, Fred usually says, "Huh." And if, you, if you're in the proper state of mind, you can achieve enlightenment from Fred Mertz's "Huh" as easily as from Quats or Moo. But you gotta you gotta be in the proper state of mind. Now, the the best way is with Johnny Carson's own. Is there any? Is there any of that available in San Francisco? It, is, it may be a myth. It probably is. The dope world is full of myths. But there's one brand of grass going around that's supposed to be Johnny Carson's own. And the story is it's grown just for Johnny. But occasionally they have a bumper crop. And Johnny, out of the goodness of his heart and his love for his fellow humanity, he allows a little bit of it to be put on the open market. And if you get Johnny Carson's own and look at her and I love Lucy Rerun, you will achieve supreme enlightenment. As soon as Fred Mertz says, I don't understand women at all uh, sort of a total confession of the intellectual bankruptcy of the patriarchy of the last 6,000 years nobody's ever expressed it as clearly as Fred you'd be surprised the profundities you can find in Fred when you're properly attuned in the right state of mind uh, the best I think uh, of all the New Age religions is the Church of the Subgenius. Praise Bob. Uh, the Church of the Subgenius is connected with the Discordian Society in that they've accepted a recent to their pantheon. I don't know whether we should be too flattered because they also accept Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk and Jehovah, Space God of Wrath and uh, uh, Darth Vader and Cthulhu and, uh, and uh, the conspiracy of the intergalactic bankers and uh, I don't know what all else. Uh, actually, the Church of the Subgenius was founded in 1957. That's 30 years ago. Um, uh, but uh, the founder, J.R. Bob Dobbs, uh, was a s humble, simple aluminum siding salesman until then. As a matter of fact, some claim he was the model for the traveling salesman in most of the old jokes. And, and one day in Palm Beach, he was on an elevator with L. Ron Hubbard. And he said to L. Ron Hubbard, Gee, L. Ron, I've never met a celebrity before. Would you tell me the secret of power? And L. Ron Hubbard was so drunk he gave it away, he just blurted it out. And uh, so Bob... So Bob went forth and started his own church using the secret of power. And... Uh, you, you can learn the secret of power, too. The Church of the Subgenius guarantees. They offer an absolutely unconditional guarantee. If you read enough of their literature, send them enough money, and everything you get from them says on the bottom of it, send more money, send more money, send more money. They say that more often than Jerry Falwell. Uh, they, uh, if you buy enough of their literature and study it profoundly enough in the proper state of mind, eventually you'll learn the secret of power. But if, if you study it, you will, it really is there. It has to do with slack. 
And most people find it very hard to understand slack. Uh, well, you know how sweet and sour works in Chinese restaurants? Well, the yin and the yang are like that. The yin is uh, like the sweet and the yang is the sour. But it's more like the hodge and the podge in the Discordian sacred cow. The hodge is the side of the comma that has the apple in it. That's the golden apple of Aris, which represents anarchy, chaos, discord, and so on. And on the other side, there's the pentagon, which represents bureaucracy and international relations. And then they're known as the hodge and the podge. And you'll notice the whole universe is divided up between hodge forces and podge forces. And every time hodge increases, podge increases. The more they raise taxes, the more tax rebellions there are. The more tax rebellions there are, the more cops they hire. And uh, it's a perpetual cycle within that system. And so it's not really, the universe is not basically sweet and sour or yin and yang. It's basically hodge and podge, according to the Discordian revelation. But according to Bob, it's even more fundamental than that. The universe is basically divided into something and nothing. And uh, if you look closely, you'll see how, how obvious that is. For instance, here's a glass of what the naive among you will think is water. Ah, mm. God, I needed that. Uh, if you look at the glass of water, you see something. If you look all around it, you see nothing. This is known as the figure ground relationship in Gestalt psychology, right? Yeah. <laughs> you see, I went to college once. I can even speak English if there's any demand for it. Uh, and no matter where you look, you look at me, I'm something temporarily, and all around me is nothing. You look at the microphone, that's something, and there's nothing around it. You get down to the, you get into quantum mechanics, you get down below the atomic level, and you find hardly any something. You find a great deal of nothing with an occasional burst of something. But no matter where you look, there's always the something and the nothing. Slack is the condition in between something and nothing. When you get yourself into perfect balance with the cosmic forces, you are between something and nothing. You are in ideal slack, and then you can get something for nothing. <laughs> now, uh, the, only, uh, the, the only religious revelation that has come along to equal that in recent years is Ramtha. Uh, uh, I, I, I love Ramtha. Ramtha is a, a fascinating demonstration that after 40,000 years, a boring old man is still a boring old man. 40,000 years, there's nothing to improve it at all. Whatsoever, he still sounds like a Reader's Digest article. And I think that's the point at which Rajanish understood the secret of power. And he said, I want 93 Rolls Royces. So they went out and they got him 93 Rolls Royces. Uh, actually, Rajanish grew up in India when, uh, when he was very poor as a little boy, and Krishnamurti was the first uh, guru to make it really big in the Western world. Krishnamurti was the first one to own a Rolls Royce. And my theory has always been that every time Rajanish got a new Rolls Royce, he would take a picture of it and write on the back of it, fuck you, and mail it to Krishnamurti. Uh, by, by the time he had 93 of them, Krishnamurti dropped dead. He couldn't take it anymore. He only had one fucking Rolls Royce, and Rajanish had 93 of them. I imagine Krishnamurti pacing around saying, what am I doing wrong? Why have I only got one Rolls Royce? Uh, you see, Rajanish understood the secret of power. Uh, maybe I haven't made this, uh, I haven't really gotten to the heart 
of the issue. Uh, uh, the business about Slack may be too metaphysical. Uh, let's see if I can make it even simpler. Um, you all know, well, Ronald Reagan is president, so it's pretty obvious. You all know how dumb the average guy is, right? Well, mathematically, by definition, half of them are even dumber than that. <laughs> Now do you understand why Bob Dobbs is almost as rich as the Pope and getting richer all the time? Uh, I, I think I think I'll make before I think it's about time for the break, and before I go off, I will make it even simpler. I want to leave you with this mantra so you can really understand the secret of power. And all of you, now that you're popes, you can go forth and start your own cults and rake in the shekels, just like L. Ron Hubbard and Rajneesh and J.R. Bob Dobbs and the Pope and the Ayatollah. A disciple is an asshole looking for a human being to attach itself to. <laughs> you uh, are free to unburden yourselves of all of the thoughts with which you are entertaining yourselves while pretending to listen to me. And uh, in accord with... Uh, the protocol of the universities where I usually appear, you will uh, pretend to put them in the form of questions. And uh, I, I... Okay. Um, the lighting isn't very good here. Could we change... Uh, for questions, could we change the house lighting so I can see who wants to ask a question? Is that possible? Ah, that's better. At least I... Uh, okay, you're first. What do you think of Dr. Gene Scott? Oh, Gene Scott. <laughs> he's my favorite. Uh, he's the only Christian fundamentalist who wears funny hats deliberately. Uh, I, I find endless hours of entertainment in trying to figure out whether he's a put-on or a lunatic or a great satirist or what the hell he's up to. But I, a lot of the things he says I find totally convincing. As a, as a theologian myself of, of sorts, I, I found him absolutely convincing in his demonstration that I are is the great beast 666 foretold in the book of revelations uh, if you haven't seen that show you should really try to get a video of it his biblical scholarship is excellent and IRS is certainly some kind of beast um, I, one night he did a great routine he spent uh, about an hour going all through the bible with a concordance cross referenced and everything and he showed the word audit does not appear once in the word of God <laughs> <laughs> so whose worried is it if it's not God's worried? It must be the devil's worried. Yeah, I, I, I like Gene Scott. Uh, I also like those big cigars he smokes. He, he said on one show he does it just to annoy the other evangelists on television. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, I two questions. Okay. The first part is kind of simple. What can you tell me what you know about vitamin K? And the second part is, is more complicated. It's uh, in, in Don, the Don Juan books, all right? I, I see references, you know, like with Western magic, as in Aleister Crowley and things like that. But can you just talk about what you feel about those books and, and how it relates to the rest of, like, Western magic? You know what I'm saying? 
I guess. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> the uh, vitamin K, yeah, that's a... a that's a very thin disguise invented by John Lilly for ketamine. Uh, ketamine is uh, what Tim Leary would call a circuit eight drug, which uh, Leary classifies drugs according to which circuit of the nervous system they activate. And uh, circuit eight is the uh, quantum circuit or the out-of-body circuit. When consciousness moves to circuit eight, you are totally detached from the body and body-oriented space-time definitions, body emotions, and body trips in general. Uh, circuit 8 is generally known as the out-of-body experience in uh, parapsychological literature. Um, the uh, the <clears throat> materialist explanation of ketamine is that it knocks out every part of the brain except the newest parts of the forebrain. So you're not getting any signals from your body. So you have been reduced to pure thought thinking about pure thought. Uh, that's, that's, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, I know the first time I tried vitamin K, I, I had an experience unique in my uh, whole life. I was absolutely convinced I was God. I mean, I have, I, I have, had, that, I have had that suspicion on occasion, like most mystics. But this time I was absolutely convinced. And I, I spent about 45 minutes arguing with myself. Now, wait a minute. You know you're on a new and experimental drug and you're just imagining your God, and that seems so damn silly because all the evidence was so clear that I was running the whole universe. And how could I be running the whole universe on drugs, you know? And so I, I, I just couldn't believe I wasn't God. And uh, interestingly enough, you. you, you you can get the same general effect with a lot of the new brain machines that are around now, especially the Hemisync uh, designed by Robert Monroe. With the Hemisync, you get pulses at uh, 404 hertz in one ear and at 400 hertz in the other ear, and the brain uh, subtracts one from the other, and so you're getting uh, sound waves at 4 hertz. And for some reason, sound waves at 4 hertz put you into circuit 8 or the out-of-body experience, or at least 70% of the users have had that kind of experience. I, I also had it with a machine known as the Pulse Star, designed by Mike Hercules in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, the first time I tried the uh, Pulse Star, Mike said, let me wire you up to an EEG so we can have a record of what happens. And so I was uh, wired up to the Pulse Star, which uh, started moving my brain waves down through alpha and theta down into delta, which is where you hit four hertz in the uh, out-of-body experience. And uh, Mike had me wired up to an EEG showing that my brain waves were falling right into sync with the rhythm of the Pulse Star, just as they're supposed to, according to the theory. And I went out of my body and over the North Pole and back to Ireland and wandered around the streets of Hoth, where I, which I was familiar with. And then I went back over the North Pole and over the Rockies and back to Boulder, and Mike unwired me, and we looked at the EEG, and I had no brain waves at all. Uh, according to the EEG, I was clinically dead during that experience. Uh, I'm very, I usually don't talk about this because there's enough critics who say that I, my brain seems to be dead. I don't want to give them more evidence, but I got, this, I got a copy of the chart 
uh, Mike made a Xerox of it. And every now and then I take this out and look at it, the period in which I had no brain activity whatsoever, and yet I was still conscious and sentient. Uh, very, very remarkable. Uh, the, I think those machines are f- fairly safe. Uh, uh, vitamin uh, K should only be taken under the supervision of a physician, in my opinion. I'm sorry to sound square and professorial, but on vitamin K, if the house were to catch fire, you would not get up and walk out. And so it's best to have somebody supervising you if you're going to experiment with vitamin K. Also, it needs to be injected and you run into all the problems with needles and so on. And, uh, I, I'm really not, uh, I'm really not uh, about to set up uh, as a an exponent, a uh, proponent, uh, telling people to go around trying vitamin K. It's, it's very, it's very interesting experience, but I think it's postgraduate work for the uh, for those who have already been through the more elementary courses. I, I don't recommend it for beginners. Um, what do you recommend for beginners? <laughs> Aspirin. <laughs> baby aspirin or full strength? Uh, start out with baby aspirin. You don't want to strain your nervous system too much. Then you go on to the hard stuff, uh, for full uh, adult strength aspirin. And then, then if you really want to live dangerously, you buy some Tylenol. That's the new form of Russian roulette, you know. Let's go out and buy some Tylenol and see if we survive the experience. Uh, I was asked about Carlos Castaneda. The most interesting thing about Castaneda to me is that he was a pupil of Harold Garfinkel and so was George Lucas Uh, if you wonder why the world is getting weirder every year uh, just remember Lucas and Castaneda both studied with Garfinkel Garfinkel is a sociologist who invented a new discipline called ethnomethodology, which involves crisis experiments. Uh, I first heard of Garfinkel when I got a fan letter from a German sociologist who asked me if my books were influenced by Garfinkel, and they weren't at that time. So I went out and read Garfinkel, and now my books are influenced by Garfinkel. So that turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, which I'm sure would delight Garfinkel. Uh, Garfinkel tried experiments like having students who are living at home uh, go home and uh, watch their parents as if they were boarders in a rooming house. Uh, This is an elementary exercise in Buddhist detachment, but the students found it quite alarming in some cases. Then he asked the braver students to go home over the weekend and act as if they were boarders. And in most cases, the parents try to have them committed to mental hospitals. Even though uh, nothing rude or impolite was done, they acted like good boarders should act. They were polite and cool and uh, ruley and so on. Uh, but all sorts of tacit game rules were being violated, and the fact that nobody knew what the game rules were made it even weirder. Another experiment of Garfinkel's I like is he had some students walking around campus, and they'd approach another student and start a conversation and move gradually closer. Now, you know, uh, Mexicans like to stand really close. North Americanos like to have about a foot and a half between them. And when you start moving within that foot and a half, people in our culture get 
nervous. And Garfinkel had his students move in gradually closer and closer until their noses were touching. Uh, and uh, people, people really went ape over that. Even though there's no book anywhere, it's not in Emily Post, it's not in the Bible, you can't find any place that says you shall not touch noses with thy neighbor. But this is an unstated game rule. Uh, Garfinkel's uh, work is entirely devoted to trying to discover how many unstated game rules we're following all the time and how do we learn them if they're never stated? And why do they control us if we don't even know that we're following them? And of course, it has a feedback loop and it's a strange loop. The question is, how many game rules are sociologists or anthropologists following when they think they're writing an objective description of another culture? And that's what influenced Castaneda. He tried to describe the shaman's world from inside instead of trying to put it into the grid of the way social scientists look at shamans. And ever since then, there have been charges that Castaneda must be nuts or he must be a liar or a fraud or something because we're not supposed to look at things from the shaman's point of view. We're supposed to look at things from our Western university social science point of view. I think Castaneda has performed the greatest breaching experiment of all. Touching noses is nothing compared to what he's done to the social sciences. <laughs> yes? So your, your name is very interesting as far as an acronym is concerned, Red Bull Blaze. Can you comment on that? Roar and War. Um, the only comment I can think of is my first name. Uh, it's what the Church of All, uh, Church of the Subgenius, is always saying. God spelled backwards is dog, but Bob spelled backwards is still Bob. <laughs> Praise Bob. Praise Bob. Uh, uh, yes. In, in a few of your books, you mentioned uh, May Russell. Do you think uh, most of her research is valid or a little too far out, or what do you think about her? Um, May Brussel. Uh, she believes I'm an agent of the Rockefeller conspiracy. Uh, she, uh, she, she has made a whole, a, whole, a whole series of charges against me, but uh, that was the one that I found most amusing. Uh, that was in Conspiracy Digest, and I wrote a letter in the next issue saying that she had the goods on me, and I might as well confess. In fact, my cellar is stacked from floor to ceiling with bars of Rockefeller gold. And then I added the additionally illuminating comment, woof, woof, woof. And I'm sure Mae Brussel is still showing that letter around as proof that she got me to confess, and she has found some extraterrestrial message in that last sentence which shows I'm an avant-garde agent of the extraterrestrial invaders from the dog star. What? I got I got bank accounts in Ireland and Ohio. I don't know why you let the real I don't know why California bankers are so paranoid. <laughs> yes. Uh, what distinction, if any, is there between a wise entity and a scoundrel? A very little. <laughs> <laughs> Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> 
the first uh, the first thing that you discover uh, if you achieve any degree of wisdom at all is that you're entirely surrounded by idiots <laughs> and uh, this is this is apt to produce a, a sense of uh, arrogance or contempt and, uh, and uh, one has to spend uh, to avoid becoming a total scoundrel one has to spend a great deal of time in uh, the Gurdjieff work in which you discover that you're an idiot too uh, and then you begin to acquire humility and then you realize that T.S. Eliot was right humility is endless the, the Gurdjieff teaching is that the human race consists of two classes objectively hopeless idiots which is the majority who have no suspicion that they're idiots at all and, and subjectively hopeless idiots which is people like me who know we're idiots and are trying to do something about it and, uh, I, I was at a big Gurdjieff festival a few years ago where they did the traditional toasting of the idiots which is an old Gurdjieff tradition everybody has to take a shot of vodka and propose a toast and everybody has to drink their shot of vodka and they toast every type of idiot who was at that particular workshop and I was on a panel at that workshop with E.J. Gold on the secrets of the Illuminati so I proposed a toast to all the idiots who sit on panels discussing the secrets of the Illuminati and uh, after you've toasted every type of idiot who sat there at the convention almost everybody is under the table and nobody's able to stand up anymore and offer another toast this may be Gary Jeff's most profound contribution to spiritual advancement uh, at least it helps you to understand what he means by a subjectively hopeless idiot uh, next question <laughs> what's your current quantum reality what's my current favorite quantum reality um I still like the multi-worlds interpretation. Uh, according to the multi-worlds interpretation invented by Everett Wheeler and Graham back at uh, Princeton, uh, the state vector which controls which way a quantum system is going to go, it never collapses. Every, it goes, every quantum system goes every possible way it can go. Since we can't see this, it's obviously not happening in this universe, so there's got to be a multiplicity of universes in which every possible choice does happen. So there's a universe in which um, Adolf Hitler is remembered as a banal portrait painter who never went into politics. And there's a universe in which George Washington wasn't assassinated and served out his term. And, uh, and sometimes people fall through from one universe to another and they get kind of confused when they find people talking about things they don't remember. Uh, uh, this is especially true if they do acid and come to one of my nightclub acts. Uh, there's, uh, there's a universe in uh, which uh, Marilyn Chambers is the uh, president of the United States. And uh, there's a universe in which John Kennedy uh, slipped on a banana peel and, and died that way. Uh, my favorite alternative universe is the one where John listened to Marilyn Monroe's importunings, jilted Jackie, and ran off with Marilyn to Mexico and married her there and gave up the presidency. And said, the hell with the presidency, I'd rather ball Marilyn Monroe. And, uh, I think that's a great alternative universe. I'm going to write a novel set there one of these days. What do you know about Zen Master Rama? Uh, what do I know about what? Zen Master Rama. Uh, 
No, no uh, I'm sorry. That's over my head. I don't know a damn thing about it. Uh, yes. What's um, what are you working on in the book department? What's coming up? Um, right now, I'm working on a movie called Reality is What You Can Get Away With. <laughs> after, after the movie, I'm going to go on with my historical series and do Volume 3, Nature's God. Actually, I've done parts of Volume 3 already, but I uh, got more interested in the movie project. For some reason, uh, they pay more in Hollywood than publishers pay. It's, uh, that's why all writers end up in Hollywood eventually. Yes? What kind of reaction are you getting from your new book, or your latest book, uh, The New Inquisition? The New Inquisition? Um, so far, I haven't gotten much reaction at all. Uh, which is odd, but I've been traveling a lot this year. Maybe the reaction just hasn't caught up with me. Maybe, maybe there are all sorts of furious denunciatory letters circulating around the world trying to find where I am now to catch up with me. I, I don't know. I, I've done more traveling this year than in all the rest of my life put together, and it's been exhilarating, and I feel like a rat in one of those enriched environment experiments. <laughs> I've been in Oslo. I've been in Oslo and Amsterdam and Zurich and Basel and Berlin and East Berlin and, uh, and Boulder and Vancouver and Maui and uh, Dallas and Tallahassee and uh, well, all sorts of weird places. Uh, East Berlin was fascinating. Totalitarianism always looks like a caricature of itself. Uh, they, got, they got these uh, guards who come on the train to check you for your passport and they look like they come from central casting. Uh, they look like all the guys who played Nazis in movies that I saw when I was a kid. It's one type of Germanic face. And they take your passport away and they go mutter with one another at the back of the train and you have visions of 30 years in a East German prison uh, on suspicion of being a CIA agent. And you look out the window and you see there's a guy with a Tommy gun walking up and down the other side of the train so nobody can sneak off the other side of the train and avoid being checked by these balutes and uh, the Berlin Wall has got minefields all around the east side and gun uh, machine gun uh, towers uh, uh, that's to keep us from breaking into the socialist paradise I when I, when I finally got out of East Germany, I wanted to do just what that kid does in that movie, Gotcha. I wanted to turn around and yell, Fuck you! I don't like totalitarianism at all, I'll tell you. Oslo is a beautiful place. Amsterdam, as everybody knows, has the best window shopping in Europe. The great thing about Amsterdam, my first night there, I was in a, a bar in a hotel with some friends, and we're drinking beer and passing a joint around the table and the cop on the beach comes in and recognizes somebody at the table and comes over, chats for a while, takes a toke on the joint, passes it on, says a cheery goodbye to everybody who's out. And that's when I knew the Dutch are the wisest people in the world. And Amsterdam is the earthly paradise. And I want to go back to Amsterdam as often as possible. <laughs> Yes. If you could create the world in your own image, how would you create it? If I could create the world... Create the objective. <laughs> 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 
I, I would uh, I would uh, try to release everybody from the masochistic, uh, pessimistic down trips that make them so unhappy and uh, keep them stoned and happy all the time. And, uh, distribute the food surpluses to the, to the third world where the people starving and uh, hang the Pope. Uh, but uh, I don't think I'm going to have the opportunity to remake the objective world in my own image, fortunately. I probably make as many mistakes as anybody else who's tried to do that. Yes, I said I've done more traveling this year than the whole rest of my life. I intend to go back to L.A. and work on the screenplay and not do any more traveling until at least February. I, I spent most of my time cursing the fact that Ralph Nader was born a bondage freak. You're on a plane, you fly eight hours, you're strapped in, you get off, you get into somebody's car, and they say, you got to put your seatbelt on, otherwise I might get fined for letting you ride in my car with us. So you got to put another strap on. And all because Nader is a bondage freak, we're all tied up. For those of us who travel a lot, we spend most of our waking hours tied up like uh, somebody in a bondage film. And uh, I, the next thing that bastard is going to do, he's going to have a law that you got to be strapped to your chair while you're working on your word processing. Uh, so even when I'm writing, I won't have any freedom. I've got to be strapped to my chair so I can't fall off and hurt myself accidentally. Uh, yes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I would, I, I would prefer Paul Newman. Um... Well, it's obvious that American politics has become a branch of show business. I, I don't think uh, I don't think Sylvester Stallone was on drugs necessarily when he said he's the next actor to be president of the United States. I think he's got a damn good chance. Uh, uh, like uh, like Bob says, uh, uh, the secret of power. Uh, half of them are even dumber than the average, and uh, so politics has become a branch of show business. And uh, I keep wondering which actors are going to be running the country in the 90s. And as far as I can make out, Paul Newman is one of the most intelligent and sensitive people in Hollywood. And uh, he also is, I understand, enormously sexy and appealing to women. And so he'll, he'll, he'll almost certainly win. I, I, have, I once quoted a statistic that, uh, that I invented on the spur of the moment. I, I told the audience that a sociological survey showed that 99% of the women in America want to ball Paul Newman. And a woman in the back yelled out, 100%! So, so I, I, don't, I don't think anybody can beat Paul Newman. And if he takes Barbara Streisand as his running mate, uh, they, they, they get the Eastern Seaboard Intelligentsia and uh, the feminists. And, and if they announce that they're going to appoint Lassie Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, uh, they, 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 they can stay in until the year 2000. And we won't get stuck with Sylvester Stallone or Clint Eastwood. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, I see I see bad times coming. Paul Newman is our only salvation, unless you, unless George Burns agrees to run. Because, uh, half of the country already thinks George Burns is God anyway. I, I, I half believe it myself. Uh, George, George Burns is sort of uh, like my ego ideal. He's what I want to be when I grow up. 
I saw his 91st birthday party on television. They had a big celebration in Hollywood. And George said, I don't feel a day over 90. Uh, he gave his secret for longevity, which is that he smokes 10 cigars a day, has uh, Bloody Mary with lunch, three martinis with dinner, and always dances close. He's just, uh, my doctor always objected, but he's dead now. <laughs> I think George Burns has a good chance of getting elected, and he'd obviously make a good president. As for the politicians, I don't trust any of them. Uh, I mean, as a last resort, if we're running out of actors, but uh, just as long as it's not a politician. Yes? Would you talk a little bit about life extension and genetic, the genetic approaches to life extension um, yeah, he asked me to talk about genetic approaches to life extension. The best book on that subject is The Engines of Creation by Keith Drexler. Hmm? Eric Drexler. That goes on other synapse. Uh, 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 with current research, uh, they have found ways to create new enzymes and replicators, molecules that will replicate themselves. And it seems pretty obvious that we're on the edge of creating uh, uh, neoenzymes that can go into every cell in the body and check out if it's operating properly and if it isn't, correct what's wrong with it. These are sort of mini, mini, mini computers on the organic level. And I, I think that research is the, of all the research on longevity that's going on, I think that's the most promising area. It also bids uh, fair to revive those who have been in cryonic suspension. When you have the proper replicators, you just inject them into somebody who's in cryonic suspension, and it will go all over their body and repair every cell and correct what they died of. Uh, Paul Siegel recently brought a dog back to life after putting it into cryonic suspension. But uh, uh, for 45 minutes. Is he still working at Berkeley? Yes, he's working at UC Berkeley, the last I heard. Uh, the important thing about longevity to me is that uh, I'm not interested in going to heaven because I'm not sure it exists. And I'm not, sure, I'm not so much uh, excited about reincarnation because with my bad habits, I'd probably be reincarnated as a Gary Hart button or something like that. And uh, having immortality through my children is not all that exciting. Uh, uh, none of them have shown any inclination to reproduce so far. And, uh, uh, I, I think the best way to achieve immortality is by not dying at all. <laughs> and so I, I think that should be the, the major goal of scientific research. We are living in a weird world where 50% of the scientists, according to Bucky Fuller and Crunch of Giants, 50% of the scientists now alive are engaged in one field or another connected with weapons research. That means 50% of the most talented technical analytical brains on the planet are devoting themselves entirely to the project of delivering more and more explosive power over longer and longer distances and shorter and shorter times to kill more and more people. 
uh, now as they make the distance, the longer and longer distances and shorter and shorter times to kill more and more people, we'll eventually reach the point where by pressing one button we can kill everybody. And it seems to me there's a, there should be a better use than that for human intelligence. I, I think I think the search for immortality would be a much more fruitful. Uh, um, I, I think the devotion to death in our society should be reversed, and we should instead uh, try to uh, enhance and celebrate life. I know this is a heretical view, but it should be stated occasionally. Uh, especially for the sake of the cowards around who don't particularly look forward to dying. Uh, any, yes? Is there a cure for stupidity? Um, I don't know if there's any permanent cure. I, I've been working on it for uh, many years. And uh, there are times I get pretty clear-cut evidence that I'm almost as stupid as I ever was. Uh, but uh, there, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are alleviations. Uh, Bio-survival stupidity, which uh, is a bad imprint on the first circuit in Leary's terms, is, uh, can be corrected by studying martial arts. If you get a black belt in karate, you will have a pretty high level of bio-survival intelligence. Emotional stupidity, which is so rampant in our society, Society, can probably be alleviated somewhat by attending a few intensive encounter groups uh, at Esalen or elsewhere, um, or by practicing pranayama, that's a great help. Uh, pranayama and hatha yoga. Uh, semantic stupidity, uh, the only cure I know is to read my books, I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't got the energy. Uh, there's two of my latest books for sale right back there, right, right over there. Uh, they will help a great deal, especially the introduction to Wilhelm Reich in Hell. Uh, sexual stupidity, uh, the best cure is to uh, go to Amsterdam and uh, then spend six months in Los Angeles. There's an old story that St. Peter sent St. Teresa down to hell to report down to earth, uh, which appears like hell from the heavenly point of view and to report on whether sin was as bad as it was in her lifetime. And after traveling all over Europe, she called heaven and said, Peter, let me come back. This, this state of sin, fornication, evil, it's worse than ever. St. Peter said, no, I want a full report. Go to the United States, check out New York. And she called back and she said, it's even worse here. Let me come back to heaven. He said, no, I want a full report. Go to California. And he waited and waited and waited and she never called. So finally he got on the celestial uh, switchboard and managed to track her down. And she picked up the phone and she said, Pete, darling, how divine. This is Terry. <laughs> Neurosomatic stupidity is based on the idea that the only way to feel high is to have some guru give you darshan. This is cured by learning the techniques of getting high on your own. And, uh, and then you don't have to be a disciple, an asshole, in search of a human being to attach itself to. You can be your own guru. Uh, neurogenetic stupidity, uh, the cure involves a prodigious amount of work and uh, advanced psychology and yoga. Um, uh, metaprogramming stupidity involves very arduous and advanced work. Uh, 
quantum stupidity, that is the delusion that we're isolated in one part of space-time and encapsulated by our skin, uh, th that can be greatly alleviated by vitamin K or by the brain machines I was talking about. I think as neuroscience advances, we'll learn how to greatly alleviate all forms of human stupidity, but considering myself as an example of somebody who's been doing a lot of this research and seeing how stupid I still am, I don't expect utopia next Tuesday after lunch. Yes? <laughs> Oh, yes, yeah, stupidity. I don't, I don't want to be too hard on stupidity. It's been around so long, it must have some evolutionary function. <laughs> I think the function of stupidity is to force the intelligent to get more intelligent. Uh, the... Um, in the, in the 1960s, we uh, discovered LSD, and we discovered how many uh, really stupid programs could be entirely negated by LSD. Uh, they were curing alcoholics at Spring Grove. Uh, they were curing schizophrenics, uh, Leary uh, up in uh, the Boston prison system, reversed the recidivism rate. The average uh, convict is back in prison. 95% uh, of all convicts are back in prison one year after release. Leary's convicts were still uh, outside on the streets leading productive lives 10 years after his work with LSD. And there was tremendous, no, nobody in the academic world wants to talk about it anymore, but there was tremendous excitement and enthusiasm in the social sciences. Everybody felt we finally got a way to reverse robot programs, release people from their conditioned and imprinted stupidities, and then the government made it illegal. And I think that's the classic example of the evolutionary function of stupidity. What that did was it led all the LSD researchers to go into other fields of research to see if they could find other ways of creating these changes. And that's how we got the Lilly Isolation Tank. We got a lot of interesting research on yoga and Zen. We got biofeedback machines. We got the new generation of brain tuning machines. We got the Graf breathing techniques. Uh, most of this research wouldn't have been done if people had been allowed to go ahead uh, research acid. So stupidity always forces the intelligent to become more intelligent, so it does have an evolutionary function. Besides, it enriches the organized religion and the advertisers. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think the Russian Missile Treaty is a Trojan horse? Uh, I think the uh, Missile Treaty is uh, probably uh, the, the last chance we have of surviving the 20th century and entering the 21st century. As long as Nancy doesn't bitch too much about uh, Mrs. Gorbachev's uh, Paris frocks. Have you heard anything about acupuncture and cancer? Acupuncture curing cancer? No, for in enhancing intelligence. Oh, acupuncture enhancing intelligence. Gee, I haven't heard anything about that at all. Have you? A little bit. Ah. Okay, that's another that's another area that's worth exploring. What about UFOs? Could you, could you talk a little bit about? Do you know of any research that people? Do you know anybody? I should say, let me be more specific, that has done research into actual uh, alternative propulsion, like magnet, magnetic and electric. Um, no, I don't know anybody who's done that kind of research. I've met Jacques Vallée several times, who's probably spent... Uh, he's probably the best scientific mind 
to have examined the UFO question closely for a period of uh, well over 20 years, and he finally gave up in disgust. He decided he'd never figure it out, and it would be more profitable to put his energy back in his computer frame and become rich. Uh, Valley started out with the assumption there's something there, and then he drifted to the thought, well, it looks more like alien spaceships than anything else in spite of the hostility in the scientific community to thinking such an exotic thought. And then the more he shifted the, uh, sifted the evidence, and especially analyzed it with computers, the more the extraterrestrial explanation broke down, and he started thinking UFOs really connect more with parapsychology, with the belief systems of the contactees and witnesses. And uh, towards the end of his 20 years, he was beginning to think, maybe there's a conspiracy on the part of some intelligence agency which is manipulating these things. And at that point, he decided he was his thinking was becoming maybe a little bit paranoid and extravagant. He got the hell out of ufology, which I, I'm much more interested in Mayborn. That's the Mutual Easter Bunny Observation Network. <laughs> they're, they're studying anomalous rabbit sightings. But, uh, they paid a lot of attention to the killer rabbit that attacked Jimmy Carter and, and the puka, which is a six-foot-tall white rabbit that haunts County Kerry in Ireland, and Bunny Man, which is another six-foot-tall rabbit reported frequently in Cornwall in England. And I think we may get more, more deeper insights out of these rabbit questions than we'll get out of the UFOs. Yes? Can you talk a little about, about foregoing energy and Wilhelm Wright and uh, the suppression of that information and... Uh, Fahrenheit 451 atmosphere around his uh, writings? Uh, yeah, the uh, I got interested in Wilhelm Reich when they burned his books. I hadn't even heard about Reich. This was back in 1957. That was 30 years ago. That was, by the way, that was the year I first smoked grass. What you see before you is what happens after 30 years of that. <laughs> Sad, I know. Uh, you take that as an endorsement then of good humble. Sansamia. Maui. Maui is the stuff if you can afford it. Um, that's the nice thing about being a celebrity. You don't have to afford it. People keep giving it to you free. Uh, I, I was, I, I was uh, really furious that they burned Reich's books. Uh, I, I, I am a First Amendment absolutist, like Justice, the late Justice Black. The Constitution says there shall be no laws abridging freedom of speech or of the press. And uh, to me, no laws means no laws. Like Justice Black used to say, I'm a simple farm boy. And when I see the word no laws, I think it means no laws. And I don't understand the ingenious intellectual processes <laughs> by which the majority of the court has arrived at the opinion that no laws mean some laws. <laughs> And that's, that's the way I feel about it, too. And so I got interested in Reich. I went around trying to find people who owned Reich's books so I, so I could read them. And it was like living there. It really was like my, the other, my other book, The New Inquisition. It really felt like living in the times of the Inquisition when uh, papers of, re of repressed scientific reports were passed around from friend to friend and always worried that the Inquisition would pounce on you. And... Uh, I've, I've been interested in Reich ever since. 
uh, one of the most interesting of his books is Contact with Space, which was not only burned by the government, but since the government has uh, lifted the ban and allowed publishers to republish Reich's books, the Wilhelm Reich Foundation has refused to allow the, this one to be republished. They don't want this one out. Now it's the Reichians who are repressing Reich instead of the government. And I got a copy of Contact with Space through subterranean channels, and it's the most fascinating book I ever read. A page, it's like looking at Gene Scott on television. <laughs> page to page, I keep changing my mind about how crazy Reich was at the end of his life. There was no doubt he was a little bit off. But the, the weirdest things in that book, Contact with Space, the UFO contacts, are also recounted by Reich's wife, Ilsa Ohlendorf, in her biography of him and by his son Peter Reich in his book, A Book of Dreams. And uh, the, the classical explanation of that sort of thing is that some forms of psychosis are contagious, which I have never believed. You can dispose of any data that way. It's like just before Reich went to prison, he announced he was going to use the orgone, the cloud buster, the orgone uh, cloud buster to create a rainstorm in Maine to prove that the orgone energy worked. And the rainstorm happened. And the explanation of orthodoxy is coincidence. There was a hand up in the back and finally... Uh, yes, I, I, I had a lot of experience with orgone boxes back in the 50s, and I was never uh, involved in any rigid scientific research with animals, uh, such as Reich did with mice, because that's the only way, doing research on uh, rodents and so on, is the only way you can prove that the effects are not entirely placebo effects due to suggestion. <coughs> I never was involved in that, so I can't swear to anything. All I know is that I got definite effects from the orgone accumulator myself, and I found it very hard to believe that was entirely due to auto-suggestion. I did one experiment with a plant, which seemed uh, the plant seemed to grow better than another plant that I wasn't putting in the orgone accumulator, but that's one experiment by one amateur experimenter. I would love to see more of Reich's critics instead of just sneering at him and saying he was an old loony. I'd like to see them publish experiments that refute Reich. That might uh, get more people interested in doing the experiments for themselves, and we might get some real hard evidence. Yes. Well, Contact with Space was the last book he wrote before he went into prison. It's, uh, it was written, obviously, it has the signs of being written in a great hurry in an attempt to get down all the most astounding things that happened in the last couple of months before he went to prison. And among other things, uh, it includes some really astounding orgone experiments and uh, pursuit by UFOs wherever he went and uh, evidence that uh, made him begin to wonder if he might be an extraterrestrial himself and, and a great deal of what looks like paranoid thinking and together with a great deal of uh, very interesting uh, reports of experiences which were apparently seen by other people besides Rake.
The book is a great intelligence test. If you can read that book without uh, forming a quick opinion, I mean, if you can read that book keeping an open mind, uh, you have reached the level of semantic intelligence. Yes? Yeah. Are you still in communication with Timothy Leary, and did you excommunicate each other? Uh, no. <laughs> Leary, as far as I know, has never become a Discordian Pope, so we haven't had to excommunicate each other. As a matter of fact, we're talking about collaborating on a computer game, but that's only talk so far. Nothing concrete has emerged yet. Uh, he's making appearances all over the country, and there's talk about him having a regular television show, too. And there's even talk about putting it on opposite Gordon Liddy. <laughs> I really love the I really love the idea of the Gordon Liddy show. It shows the direction television is going. Obviously, next year we're going to have the Son of Sam hour. <laughs> and, 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 and after that, inevitably, springtime for Hitler. <laughs> yes. You wrote the introduction to uh, Christopher Hyatt. Would you comment on Christopher Hyatt? Would I comment on Christopher Hyatt? Uh, Christopher Hyatt is the outer head of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And uh, he's also, uh, incidentally, he's a uh, Reikian psychotherapist with a background in Jungian psychotherapy, too. And he's a very dynamic uh, individual, and he's got a great sense of humor. That's, that's, uh, I don't know what else to say about him, except it's a lot of fun uh, uh, being with him. So you were talking about cures for stupidity before. I have a five-year-old. I was wondering if there's any prevention. <laughs> uh, how, how to prevent stupidity? Uh, try to save the poor lad from the public school system. Uh, get rid of the television set for a few years. I, th I think my kids turned out pretty well because we lived without a television set for about four years, and that allowed them to discover there was an external world that was non-electronic and got them interested in all sorts of things that they never would have discovered if they spent their time, like most American children, just staring at the tube all the time. Very deep state of hypnosis. Uh, avoid the public schools and get rid of television for a few years. That's the best advice I can think of off the top of my head. Try to get smarter yourself, though. That'll help you get. Yes? I know it's kind of speculative, but where do you see yourself in about 10 years, if anywhere? In about, uh, in about 10 years, I think I will be uh, living in Amsterdam. Uh, I will... Uh, well, you see, I live in Ireland for sentimental reasons. Uh, they don't tax writers there, and I'm sentimentally attached to my money. But I, I, I just found out that in Holland, they don't tax you on money you make from sources outside Holland. Uh, and so I, I, I might be moving on to Amsterdam. And uh, I am, uh, ten years from now, I, uh, I imagine I'll be in my uh, early 40s again uh, because I think the rejuvenation technology is advancing at that rate. Twenty years from now, I expect to be in my 20s again. And I'll have a lot more sense than I had the first time around. I won't make most of the same stupid mistakes. At least I'll make no stupid mistakes this time. Yes. Okay. The possibilities, the likelihoods, and the results of 
Yeah, I uh, I find it uh, staggering to think that in this vast galaxy, uh, as Carl Sagan says, billions and billions of stars, and all the billions and billions of galaxies uh, that coexist with us, I find it rather staggering to think this is the only place that life has evolved. And uh, looking around the Earth, I prefer, I find it uh, far preferable to think that there must be intelligent life somewhere. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, since many suns are 15 billion years older or even more, uh, quite a bit older than our suns, evolution in other places has undoubtedly advanced much further than it has here. And so I'm very, I'm very much inclined to believe that there are intelligences far superior to Jerry Falwell. Or, uh, there, there may even be intelligences superior to Einstein and Buckminster Fuller. And I find that a really uh, humbling and awe-inspiring thought. Uh, I, I have yet to be convinced of any real evidence that they have contacted uh, humanity. Uh, perhaps they uh, have a hands-off policy, like Captain Kirk, or, or perhaps they uh, cannot see any point in it any more than most of us have made serious efforts to, to communicate with the Norway rat. <laughs> what? I, I once. Uh, I once had an experience in which I thought I was being contacted by extraterrestrials, but then a psychic uh, reader told me I was actually channeling an ancient Chinese philosopher, and another psychic reader told me I was channeling a medieval Irish bard, and at that point I decided it made more sense to think that the puka from County Kerry was playing games with me than to take any of those metaphors literally. Uh, when I speak to scientific groups, I say it was... Uh, a hole in the corpus callosum, which allowed a great deal of uh, holistic data from the right hemisphere to flow into the analytical left hemisphere and almost overwhelm it for a while. Uh, but my private belief is that it was the puka. That's that six-foot-tall white rabbit in County Kerry. Uh, yes? Um, heard a little bit about the Yakti way of knowledge and about accessing heart chakra energy bypassing the brain. Could you comment on that? Particularly about MDMA ecstasy. The yuppie way of knowledge, MDMA. That's, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the most delightful uh, expression I've heard since uh, I started this tour back in New York and somebody described the harmonic convergence as the yuppie rapture. Uh, I don't know, what I know about MDMA is that I enjoy it very much. Uh, Two years ago, uh, when I was touring in the States, I met a lot of psychiatrists who told me, this is it, this is what we thought LSD was, this is curing everything. But don't talk about, but don't talk about it too much or the government will make it illegal. And then a year ago, I came back, every psychiatrist I met said, oh shit, the government's about to make it illegal. Since then, there have been some reports that it is dangerous for some people, and especially if you overdo it, it is dangerous for people with high blood pressure and so on. 
And that's, uh, meanwhile, I like it. <laughs> but of course, most of what's called MDMA now is like what's called LSD now. You're, you're dealing with an underworld and a black market and God knows what you're buying. And you should always uh, be aware of the possibility that you're buying real shit, man. <laughs> Yes. DMT. Um, I don't know too much about DMT. The one time I took DMT was a mistake. It was at lunchtime. Uh, it was, it's called a businessman's uh, drug, you know, because you can do it at lunchtime. Well, it doesn't always work that way. This was mixed with grass, which uh, potentiated the effect. Uh, I went back to the office, and my boss had a nose about this long like Pinocchio, and the walls kept moving like jelly. And, uh, it was a very difficult afternoon. Uh, I, I mean, when they, call, when they call you into an editorial meeting, and there's uh, all sitting around the table are a bunch of iguanas. You're, 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 I mean, this happened to me before it ever happened to Uncle Duke. And, uh, I, I, so I, lost, I kind of lost interest in DMT after that experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Could you remark about the mermaids reported swimming between the Isle of the Finnish Moor and the coast of Moor? The mermaids, the, the mermaids uh, uh, out by the burn. Uh, I, I don't have a good story about them, so I'll tell you a good puka story. When I first arrived in when I first arrived in Ireland, my very first day there on the radio, I heard an interviewer from Dublin interviewing a Kerry farmer about uh, they're doing an oral history of Ireland uh, for RTE Radio Telefisheran. And the farmer is telling all sorts of local anecdotes about people who've encountered the puka. And the puka drags you out of, uh, you come out of the pub at midnight, say, and you start home and the puka jumps out from behind a tree and says, I've got your arse, mate, and drags you off into fairyland. And you can spend thousands of years over there encountering King Arthur and the Holy Grail and Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and... Uh, uh, Rose Red and Snow White and uh, the dwarfs and the trolls and uh, the elves and and whatnot and going through black holes and coming out white holes and uh, and when the puka gets tired of playing with you after thousands and thousands of years and lets you loose, it's only a few minutes later in ordinary uh, terrestrial time and you're on the road staggering home to your farm. There are those who say the probability of encountering the puka is directly proportional to how many pints of Guinness stout you've put away that night, but there are skeptics everywhere. Anyway, this interviewer asked the farmer finally, after collecting a lot of good anecdotes, do you believe in the puka yourself? And the Kerry man answered with perfect Kerry logic, that I do not, and I doubt much that he believes in me either. <laughs> This is this is the this is the typical structure of an Irish sentence, sentence just like Bob Geldof's. I don't know what the fuck improper language is. Uh, let's see. It's um, developments in your twenty-three journey. I got a letter from somebody asking me to explain why the hell twenty-three kept haunting them after reading my books, and they included a stamped, self-addressed envelope to sort of blackmail me into answering them as busy as I am. So I sat down and wrote the most intelligent answer I could. 
And then I looked up and noticed the TV satellite guide, which was on the table next to me, had a football player with the number 23 on his jacket. And I thought, my God, uh, sometimes I almost believe in it myself. (laughs) When I was in St. Louis a couple of years ago, a guy came up to me and he said, I figured out how the 23 gimmick works. You make your readers abnormally conscious of 23s and they notice them and don't notice other numbers. And I said, congratulations, you found the master who makes the grass green. And then we went out, then he invited me out to, with his wife. Uh, we went to a pizza joint, and they gave us a number while we waited for our pizza. And, and of course, it was 23. And he said to me, how do you do it? And I, I have gone 20 minutes past the time uh, that I was supposed to go. It's uh, My God, it looks very much like I got one minute to go to make 23. There are some books for sale up here. I suggest you inspect them. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. By the way, today is April 20th, 420 day, and yesterday was Bicycle Day, being the 76th anniversary of Dr. Hoffman's famous bicycle ride. On top of that, tomorrow is Earth Day. So my guess is that you like this trifecta of Bicycle Day, 420 Day, and Earth Day all in a row as much as I do. Most likely you've planned your own form of celebration for this weekend, whether it's with acid, cannabis, or honoring the work of Gaia. And I hope that whatever you do to enjoy this weekend, that it goes well for you. It certainly has been good for me so far, and once I get the post-production work done here and this podcast posted, well, it's going to get even better. So for now, this is Lorenzo, and I'll be seeing you soon in cyberdelic space. Be well, my friends.